0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Heavenly Father, You who know what we have gone through this whole week, the good and the difficult. Father, You are the one who knows what will happen in the week that's ahead, the joy and the pain. But God, You are also the God who is with us right now and we pray that Your Holy Spirit will help us As we settle our hearts and our minds, that God, your spirit will help us to engage with your word, that we may engage with your truth, that our hearts may be strengthened, that our faith may be strengthened, that God, your spirit will help us by the understanding of your word to go forth in confidence in you in the week ahead. Pray all this for your glory. Amen. Now, an American poet once said this. He said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. The universe is made of stories, not atoms. No, we grow up listening to stories. Do you remember some of the stories you heard? Or perhaps you tell your children if some parents are here. Now, we grow up living through our own stories. Some of the stories bring smiles when we think about it. Others have brought pain and tears. And as we grow, as we grow old, we hope that at the end of the day, we leave behind a worthwhile story. I hope that's what you want. That at the end of the day, you will leave behind a worthwhile story. You know, histories are built on stories, so are empires. The fame of great men and women are remembered by stories. The fame of ancient kings is always told true stories and often the stories of their war, campaigns, and conquests. About 190 years ago, in 1830, there was a colonel by the name Robert Taylor. He uncovered an ancient prism at the ancient Nineveh, the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. In this prism, the great conquest by the ancient king, Sennacherib, was recorded. This prism is also called Taylor. Prism is now safely kept in the British Museum. Years later, another very similar prism appeared, and it was bought by the Oriental Institute kept in Chicago, given the name? Oriental Prism. Then yet, another very similar one was found again, and it was acquired by the Israel Museum. And you can guess it, the prism is named the Jerusalem prism. Now, these three ancient artifacts, they are ancient because they were dated back to 691 BC and 689 BC. They are ancient um, artifacts there. And they tell the stories, similar stories of the ancient empire in our human history. They recorded the war victories of the Assyrian empire in the days of King Sennacherib. The prisms also inscribed Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem itself and how he actually called Hezekiah, the king of Judah, a caged bird. So here's part of the translation in English of the Sennacherib's prism and I'll read what it says to us. This is what it says, As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his 45 cities, along with many small towns, taken in battle with my battering rams. He goes on, I took a plunder of 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses and mules and camels and oxen and sheep. And he goes on, As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then construct a series of fortresses around him and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. Now the battles against Judah were recorded in these artifacts. The tributes given by Hezekiah were mentioned. But if you examine these artifacts, all of them, none of it actually tells you Whether Sennacherib eventually captured the city of Jerusalem, well, it it claims that they received great tributes after that. But regarding the battle itself, the prisms went silent. And while Sennacherib's palace at Nineveh, they will be decorated with depiction of his campaigns and victories, including his siege of Lachish, which you read in the Bible. Jerusalem was never appeared in all of his decorations. It was a silent. Later in other Assyrian historical records, as well as the Babylonian chronicles, because they came right after, they mentioned the unfortunate story of how the great Sennacherib was murdered. Apparently by his older sons, because Sennacherib, he chose a younger son to be the crown prince. All these were the historical stories of the great Assyrian Empire, which you can find in the museums. But now, what has been kept silent in these ancient prisms? This morning, we are going to unpack it through the eyes of King Hezekiah himself, through the ancient prophet Isaiah, through the ancient scrolls, which we see as the Bible. This morning, we come to unpack The ending of the fatal war, Sennacherib's um, rage against God's people and God's king in Jerusalem. And for today, we shall call this fatal war, the war on faith. The war on faith. For as dramatic or as distant this Jerusalem siege sounded, dear friends, it is actually much closer than you and I think. It is much closer because every one of us, if you claim that you trust in God, you will ultimately face your own wars on faith. For you see, dear friends, when you and I finally pen down the last bits of our stories, as we hear in so many Christian funerals, the most important story will not be about your victories, it will be whether you have trusted in God till the end. So join me now as we step into the ancient war between the undefeatable king Sennacherib and God's king Hezekiah in this war on faith. If you have your Bible, can I invite you to keep it open? I'll read for us from Isaiah 36 verse 1, but we'll come back to these two chapters very regularly. Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now the year is 701 B.C. Just imagine with me for a moment that you and I, we are with God's people in Jerusalem. Just imagine for a moment, you are there with God's people and everything is in a mess. They are facing a terrible situation because we all know their stories of old. We know how they were a great empire under King David and later King Solomon. How the nations feared them. But that was history. It's no longer so. For after Solomon God's kingdom, Um, the people have divided this kingdom into two, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, who called themselves Israel, have already been conquered by Assyria 19 years later, before this, in 722 BC. And now, at 701, all the other 45 cities were captured. Hezekiah is left only with Jerusalem, with countless soldiers all surrounding them, Hezekiah, as he looked out, he realized he has no place to hide. He has no strength to fight. So as Hezekiah looked out of his palace and his soldiers and his officials stands at the wall and looks out of the, behind the wall, this is what happens in verse 4. If you look at it with me. The field commander of Sennacherib said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, <laughs> On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom, on whom are you depending on that you rebel against me? Now on behalf of Sennacherib, the field commander began what we understand as the psychological warfare to win the battle by getting Judah to surrender herself. He begins by getting Judah to doubt God because if he could undo the faith of God's people and God's king, this battle is over. If the people would doubt God, this war is over. It is a war on faith. Listen to the commander's words. He says, listen up Judah on behalf of the great king of Assyria. Let me ask you, on what do you base this confidence of yours? Or on whom can you trust that you dare rebel against the powers of this world? And here is the psychological warfare. Look at verse 6. This is why he says, Judah, do you depend on Egypt? Well, Egypt is like a staff with splinters on it. As you hold on to Egypt, the splinter pierce you. Are you not bleeding as I'm speaking to you? Where is Egypt to save you? And verse 7, And if you say, No, no, we we don't depend on Egypt anymore. We we depend on the Lord God. Well, let me tell you, your God has lost power the day your king dismantled the high places around your nation, leaving only one in Jerusalem. And take a look at the army, verse 8 to 10. Do you even think for the slightest chance that you can win us? By the way, isn't it your Lord God who has sent me to bring destruction to you? Now as the enemy crafts his words cunningly, Judah begins to feel the real pain of having trusted Egypt. Judah is tempted to doubt King Hezekiah's decision to dismantle all the high places as as God has commanded, leaving only the temple in Jerusalem. Now Judah can almost hear the echoes of the warning of the old prophet Isaiah, who had warned them and they had ignored. The Isaiah said, Nations and king armies from far away will come to judge you, if you do not turn back to God. Now at this moment, as their eyes looked out of the wall, over the wall to the countless armies, the question comes, has God really abandoned them? You no. Know, Hezekiah's officials, they, they tried to get a few commander not to speak in Hebrew. They fell even deeper into the trap because when the moment they say, don't speak in Hebrew, the commander raised his voice and he says in verse 12, the commander replied to the officials, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say this thing and not to the people sitting on the wall whom like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Now imagine if you are still there with them looking across the uncountable enemies across the wall And then the few commander continues in verse 13. He says this, Hear hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust the Lord. Verse 16, Do not listen to Hezekiah. Now as the enemy start to wage war between God's people and God's king and God himself, as God's people looked across the wall, suddenly the enemy threw a sweetener right across to them into their face. Verse 16, and he says this, this is what the king of Assyria says, Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come to take you to the promised land. As the people stood listening behind the wall, with this threat, and then the swithener coming, the enemy shouts again, verse 18, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you, when he says, the Lord will deliver you. Now dear friends, this is a war on faith, on their faith in God, and in God's King. Do not trust your king who calls you to turn to God. Do not trust because no gods will deliver. Remember your northern brothers in Samaria, your northern brothers, they have added gods to their belts of ammunition. Yet has any of those gods saved them? Verse 20, How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hands? No, the haunting voice of the enemy is relentless, exercising psychological warfare, which is really spiritual warfare. Your God, His King, they cannot save you. Turn to Sennacherib. Let Him be your Saviour. Let Him be your King. Let Him be your God. And you will enjoy the luxuries that He has to offer you. Now dear friends, as we just pause here in this story for a moment, perhaps we will find that the war on faith is way closer than it is ancient. For too often, you and I, we are also tempted to doubt God and to trust the world. Now the question the enemy hurls across the wall will hit us on our face as well. On whom will you depend on? On whom will we trust? Perhaps, perhaps sin comes and challenges our faith. Sin comes telling us God cannot really set us free. The enemy whispers to you and to me, Give in to sin. Stop fighting what you call temptation. That is just who you are. There is no greater power against the power of sin. After all, which gods have overcome sin? To that voice of the enemy, how will you respond? How will we respond? Or perhaps a broken health challenges our faith, telling us God cannot defeat decay and death. When the doctors shake their head, the enemy whispers to us, live out the remaining of our lives in hopeless despair despair because there is no power against sickness and death after which gods have defeated death how will we respond on whom will we trust or perhaps perhaps there are broken dreams broken relationships that have stung you it challenges our faith telling us God has not been providing for you the enemy whispers to your ears when you are hurting and feeling pain Ignore God's call for holiness. Give up on God who does not care for what you desire. After all, which God, which God lets his people suffer? To the enemy's voice, how will you respond? On whom will we trust? Or perhaps when religious persecution or atheism or secularism challenge our faith, telling us God does not exist, friends, the enemy whispers to us, stop thinking about God. Rather, kiss the feet of Sennacherib of your generation and you will learn pleasures of this world. Let go of your God and his law and I'll show you what is pleasure. To the voice of the enemies, dear friends, how will we respond? No friends, when are some of the occasions that you recognize that your faith gets threatened? It could be different from mine. It could be similar. When are the times that you recognize yet your faith gets threatened? At those various crossroads where sickness or sin, when trials or temptation calls out to you, how will we respond? On whom will we trust? Let's come back to Isaiah 36 to see how God's people respond to this verse 21 verse 21 but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded do not answer him now as God's people look at the countless soldiers and horses and chariots they remained silent the officials likewise and they went to the king who then went before the Lord. Hezekiah sent messengers to the Lord's prophet to intercede for the people before God. In the the face of the horrendous threats, God's people and God's king, they did not respond immediately to the enemies. Instead, the people trusted in their king, and the king went before God and pleaded before God. Hezekiah, he acknowledges before God their desperate need for rescue. And then, Hezekiah laid out this amazing request to God through Isaiah. And this is his plea to God. His plea to God is that God, would you defend your glory and save the remnants. Look at verse 4 of chapter 37. It may be that the Lord your God Isaiah will hear the words of the few commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuild him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Now, friends, what Hezekiah recognized about this spiritual warfare is crucially important for us. Because here's the thing, any spiritual warfare that calls us to renounce our faith is first of all a challenge to the glory of God's name. Let me say that again. Any spiritual warfare that calls us to renounce our faith is first of all a challenge to God's glorious name. Whether an enemy calls us to sin, to be bitter, to be angry, to fall into despair, to reject God, the ultimate threat is a mockery to suggest that God is not good enough for us. That God is not great enough to save us or gracious enough to forgive us or glorious enough to be worshiped now it is a call for treason to turn to a different god so any war on faith dear friends is a challenge to God's glorious name it is against this threat by the few commander that hezekiah cries out to God that God would you rebuke the enemy's mockery and blasphemy and in the process save your people for your own name's sake? Now in the face of the threats, Hezekiah's response was not to question or to doubt God, but to lean and depend on God even more, recognizing that the threat was a spiritual war to turn God's people against God. And so as Hezekiah pleaded, God replies. Do not be afraid, says the Lord in verse 7. Listen, when Sennacherib hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. The Lord says, the enemy, they will head home. The king, he will die by the sword in his own land. No, dear friends, as we listen to this, do we recognize that spiritual warfare on our faith is always, first of all, an attack on God's glorious name? Do we recognize that? Spiritual warfare on the faith of God's people is always, first of all, a war on God's glorious name. To rob God's glory by calling God's people to turn away from God and worship something else or someone else. It is to make God's people believe that God is not faithful enough. God is not powerful enough. God is not good enough. May we learn as we hear Hezekiah's prayer and recognize what the war on faith is really about so that we will not turn from God, but rather we will turn to God and lean even more on God when the war comes on you. Now as we come back to chapter 37, verse 8, the war on faith comes in a second round. Now, God has promised, and so it happened, the tide of the enemy began to change. Sennacherib, he starts to lose ground. In fact, his field commander was forced to turn his attention to a more pressing battle facing King Sennacherib. However, because of his pride, King Sennacherib, in the face of other wars, refused to let Jerusalem go. So he sent a letter to Hezekiah saying, verse 10, Hezekiah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. In verse 12, Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? While the few commanders in chapter 36 threatens God's people not to trust their king, in 37, Sennachera himself come and threaten the king not to trust his God. His argument is simple. He says, No other gods had power to stop him. Why should Hezekiah think his God is any different? On whom will you depend on, Hezekiah? Will you really trust your God to save you at this stage of the war? This is the age-old battle, age-old question for all kingly descendants of David and all who profess to be the people of God. Because underlying the war on faith is a foundational question. On whom will you really depend on? Will Hezekiah, the descendant of David, trust that God is faithful enough to keep His promise, powerful enough to save the remnants? Will King Hezekiah be different from King Ahaz, who has turned his back on God in chapter 7? Chapter seven, verse nine. God gave this warning to King Ahaz. God said, "If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all." Will Hezekiah stand firm in his faith, in his faith, in the face of the enemies? So, as the enemy wages this war on Hezekiah's faith, this is how Hezekiah responds. Verse fourteen. Hezekiah responded by going to the temple of the Lord. He no longer asked true prophet Isaiah. He himself came and spread Sennacherib's letter before the Lord and he prayed to the Lord God himself. Now as he faced the frightening enemies and armies of Sennacherib, King Hezekiah finally sees clearly what this war is really about. This war is nothing to do with two kings fighting each other. Two human kings waging war against each other. This war is really a war between a human king surrounded by arrogance against the living God surrounded by cherubims. This is a war between the arrogance of the created versus the glory of our creator. Look at verse 16. He says, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over the kings, kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Now dear friends, when the war is on faith, when the stick is God's name, the war is no longer about us. It's no longer just about us. It's about God who has prepared a people for Himself, who willingly worships Him and returns to Him and honors Him. Now false gods are always made to serve humans. If you have not noticed that. But not the living God. We serve the living God. So in the famous story of David and Goliath, that all the children in Jerusalem would remember, and they know by heart, how the fearsome warrior Goliath, he would mock the people of God relentlessly. Goliath would curse God's people by the name of his gods, now the Philistine gods. Now god's people would be shivering as he hears this giant coming day after day, mocking and taunting them, until one day a young shepherd boy by the name David, the ancestor of King Hezekiah. He could not take it when he heard it. And he came forward and ran towards the enemy's line out of a righteous anger for God. He had nothing with him. He had a few pebbles and a faith in God. And he shouted out these words as he ran. And these are the words that will make any Jewish boy fall off his bed when dad reads the story because they all know what it is. This is what David says as he ran towards the enemy line. He said this, let me read to us. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And let me read on, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, I will strike you down, I will cut off your head, this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. You no, know, dear friends, the story of David and Goliath, the words shouted out by David that day, they were the foundation of the centuries old Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on those words, it was built on that faith. Now back in Jerusalem, King Hezekiah, the 13th successor of David as king of Judah at Jerusalem. He will reply as David did. He no longer simply cries for some rescue alone. He cries to God for God's name never to be defiled. Let's look at verse 18 to 20 with me. Listen to what Hezekiah says to God. It is true, Lord, it is true, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods in the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, Deliver us from His hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You, Lord, are the only God. Dear brothers and sisters, friends, the rest is history. While the three Assyrian artifacts of Sennacherib's reign displayed in the various museums strangely kept silent, what really happened in Jerusalem? And Sennacherib's palace at Nineveh displayed all his victories but never displayed Jerusalem as part of it. The Jewish historical records in Isaiah 37, in 2 Kings 19, in 2 Chronicles 32, fills in this gap. After Hezekiah's prayer to God, the prophet Isaiah came with the message of God from verse 21 all the way to 35. The story of the war on faith ends with God powerfully intervening to save Jerusalem. 185,000 enemies were put to death. Sennacherib the arrogant returned home, defeated and years later, murdered by his own children in the battle for his crown. As the Lord himself declared in verse 21, and then he closed in 35, the Lord says this, Because you have prayed to me, Concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, verse 35, the Lord concludes, "I will defend this city and save it, for my name's sake, and for the sake of David, my servant." You no know, dear friends, the people who trusted and put their faith in God that day, they were saved, because God's name can never be blasphemed. God's glory can never be wrought. And God's promises to David are always kept. Now, as we listen to this up to this point, we may think this is a really nice historical story. But dear brothers and sisters, friends, this account is not just a nice story. This account was recorded for us because the war on faith has not ended that day for the rest of humanity. It continues to this very day because you and I, we continue to hear the taunts of Sennacheribs of our time. We hear the external challenges calling us, give up our faith in the face of circular arguments with some underlying agendas or those catchy quotes in social media that mocks God or persecution from friends and family, perhaps your colleagues, or in some countries, our brothers and sisters, by political or religious warlords. And while the challenging comes to us relentlessly, the enemy throws in sweetness to lure us. lure us with a garden of pleasure that we can embrace if we will only be willing to let go of God and His word. To kiss the sinnet ring of the powerful but godless. Let go of God, and my world's pleasures are yours to enjoy, shouts Sennacherib. But at times, the war on faith comes, from, comes to us from within. But our fleshly desires tempting us to give in to our greed, to our lust, to our pride, to our anger, to our bitterness to disobedience, the voice of the flesh whispering to us, saying, God is not good enough to meet our needs. God is not gracious enough to care for you. God is not attractive enough compared to this world. God is not glorious enough for His name to be honored by His creation. Look at how comical and limited God has been portrayed in the movies, in literature, in conversation, in some human relationships. The war on faith is still going on, my friends. The war of faith is still going on on God's people today because the final day of judgment for the Sennachery of every generation has not arrived. But yet, we can have all confidence and joy today because we too have a Davidic king who has put his trust in God we have a king who has already won the deciding war in the temple. In fact, this king, his own body, is the temple. And we know this king, our Lord Jesus, the son of King David, the Son of God. When King Jesus comes into our world, the devil comes and tempt him and threats him. But no threats, no temptations have dampened the slightest bit of the trust. And the love Jesus has for God the Father. Jesus was totally obedient to the Lord, to God Himself, such that Philippians 2 tells us this. You are familiar, many of you are, with what Philippians tells us about Jesus. He was in very nature God, yet He humbled Himself by being obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And this is good news for us because we have King Jesus who is not just obedient for a period of time he was obedient even unto death Jesus interceded for us for our sins in fact Jesus said he is the temple and he is also the sacrifice he comes to pay the price for our rebellion against God so that by his blood we are saved Because at his body in this temple, the victory was won. Salvation was given. All we have to do right now is to keep trusting in him and to keep holding on to Jesus until our king returns. The victory has already been won. The judgment is soon to come. So in Jesus, there's no sin that God will not forgive. There's no brokenness that God will not mend and heal. There's no death that God will not raise. There's no promises that God has given to you in Jesus that will not be fulfilled. For His namesake, for Jesus' namesake, God will save the king's people and God will establish the city of Zion, the future Jerusalem. The enemy's judgment has not arrived, but it will. So dear Brian, sisters and friends, as we conclude today's two chapters, I have these two calls for response for us. The first call is this. Will we choose to trust Jesus as our King today and live the story of faith? Will we choose to trust Jesus as our King today And live the story of faith even when the world, the devil and the flesh wage war on you and on me? Will we trust Jesus as our King? And the second call for response is this. When we pray and ask God for help, which we often do and I hope you do it often. When we pray to ask God for help, will we first pray for God's glory to be known? We first pray that God's glory be made known. Now, dear God, this trial, this temptation is difficult. And it is an attempt for me to turn away from you. That your name is dishonored by your own loved ones. God, would you rescue me? Would your name be honored? When we pray to God for help, in the coming weeks, will we first pray that God's name will be honored and that God will keep us trusting in His promise given to us in Jesus because a prayer that's declared in faith is really the way to deal with the harsh realities of life. A prayer declared in faith in God is actually the way to deal with the harsh realities that the wars on faith throws at you. No dear friends, we grow up listening to stories. We grow up living our own stories. And whether we are 18 or 8 or 80, whether we are 24 or 42, we all hope that when we die, we live behind a worthwhile story. And I hope you do, that you want to live behind a worthwhile story. But the question is this, what kind of story? Will you leave behind a story writing about all your achievements and silent about your failures, like Sennacherib? Or will you leave behind a story of faith that you have clung on to the king who is coming back for you? Because if you live a life of faith, the Bible tells us when death comes, our story was, is going to be a comma. Because when King Jesus returns for the future Jerusalem and for his people, our story continues from there. What story will you write for your life? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for Isaiah 36, 37. We thank you for this historical account that is not silent, but is written for us. We thank You that Hezekiah trusted in You and the people trusted in their King. And so, Father, help us today because we rejoice that our King Jesus trusted in You. And so, Father, we pray that You help us to trust in our King because we know that the victory has already been won at the temple in His body and the judgment will soon come for your enemies but those of us who do not climb over the wall and hug the ring of Sennacherib but those of us who keep our faith in our king who died for us Father we know that the promised land the garden of Eden as you have said in Revelation will be given to your king our king's people pray for your glory and for yours alone